Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And this morning we will be reading verses 11 and 12. This is God's Word. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. One of my favorite movies from the last couple of decades is a movie called Groundhog Day. And if I hope you've seen it before, it would help because I'm going to actually be referring to it a number of times this morning. But it's a movie, if you haven't seen it, about an arrogant, rude weatherman named Phil Connors. And Phil Connors, as a weatherman in Pittsburgh, uh, is assigned every year to go and cover the festivities in Punxsutawney surrounding Groundhog Day. And in his arrogance, he feels he's too good for this kind of work, and he despises it and begrudgingly goes to Punxsutawney at the beginning of the movie to begin that year's coverage of Groundhog Day. But that day, that time is very different because as he wakes up the next morning, he finds out that it's still Groundhog Day. Matter of fact, as he wakes up every morning, it's still Groundhog Day. He gets stuck in that one day. Well, at first, Phil is very angry about the situation he's in. Of all the places to get stuck, he gets stuck in Punxsutawney on Groundhog Day. But then eventually he figures out that, hey, wait a minute. If I start over every day, at the beginning of the day, if I start over again, that means there aren't any consequences to my behavior. And so that means that Phil can go out and get drunk and not have to worry about having a hangover the next day because he starts over the day before. If he eats a lot of junk food, he doesn't have to worry about putting on a lot of weight. If he manipulates people and takes advantage of people, he doesn't have to worry about any of the relationship consequences to that. If he steals money, he doesn't have to go to jail. If he destroys property, he doesn't have to pay the price. No consequences. And for a while, he thinks that's the greatest life. Well, we Christians often struggle with a very similar issue. There's a sense in which you can hear the gospel and believe the gospel and come to the conclusion, hey, wait a minute, there's no consequences. If all my sins of the past and all the sins that I'm committing today and all the sins that I will commit until the day I die, if they're all paid for at the cross... If Jesus died for those sins and paid them in full, then there's no consequences. My life is a blank check. I can live any way I want to live. Many young Christians actually pursue that for a while. We need to look at that question and look at it very seriously. Why be holy 
if we're saved by grace? Why be holy if we're saved by grace? Because Peter is really dealing with that here in this section of his letter. He's been talking about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been talking about who we are as the church. Saved by grace and all the glories and beauty, all this that has come to us as a gift. But then here, as we get to verse 11, at the end of chapter 2, he switches back to the call to holiness. And as we have seen and we will continue to see, this is a major theme through this letter. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 15. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter cares very much about the church becoming more and more righteous, more and more obedient, more and more holy. But he has to address the question, why? What motivates us? Why should we strive to be holy? And as we look at Peter's answer, what we're going to see is the very common biblical answer is that in order to understand the call to holiness, you need to understand what happens when you believe the gospel. What happens when you're born again? What happens when your eyes are opened to the grace, to the cross, and to the risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? The key to answering this question lies in the radical transformation that takes place when God saves a sinner. The radical transformation. It's what Paul is alluding to in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, when he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. As we strive to answer the question, why be holy? The answer is in the newness of the new life in Christ. What's new about it? If we understand what's new about our life in Christ, we will understand why we should be driven to be holy. The first newness that Peter alludes to here is our new identity in Christ. As we come to Christ in the Gospel, we receive a new identity, and that new identity is all about holiness. Again, as I mentioned earlier, in verses 4-10, through 10, Peter's been talking about the glory of the church. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The place where God dwells. We are living stones built upon the cornerstone who is Jesus Christ. Peter goes on to describe us as the holy nation and a holy and royal priesthood. This is who we are by God's grace. And so in a sense, when Peter says, be holy, he's actually saying, be who you are. Live out your new identity as the church of Jesus Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the royal priesthood, the holy nation. Live it out before the world. Be who you are. And Peter talks in these verses, verses 11 and 12, about our new identity in two ways. First of all, It's alluded to in the word of address he uses here at the beginning of verse 11. He calls the church beloved. 
Now, he could be talking about his own love for the church, but I don't believe in context that's his primary reference here. He's not primarily referring to his own love for the church. He's referring to the love of God for the church. You are a loved church. And it's that word, the, the word, the, the, the term that's used there comes from the particularly gospel-centered Greek word for love, which is agape. You are the loved church. And I know that because, go back to verse 10. We looked at this at the end of our message last week. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And if you were here last week, you remember that that is a clear allusion to the prophecy that was given through the prophet Hosea. And the whole book of Hosea, the whole prophecy of Hosea, has as its central concept the marriage between God and His church. That God enters into a covenant with His people that marriage is only a pale reflection of. That that's the kind of love that God has for His people. But you remember that Hosea was asked to marry a woman, Gomer, whom he knew would commit adultery against him. Again and again and again. And the children, the, the two of the three children that Hosea and Gomer had was one child called, in Hebrew, not my people, and another child called no mercy. And this was to be a statement of God saying to his people, you have broken covenant with me. You have committed spiritual adultery again and again and again. And I'm going to put you away. Because you have broken covenant with me. I am not going to show you mercy. You will not be my people. But then halfway through the book, God goes to his people again. And he, 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 before he does this, he actually says to his, to Hosea, his prophet says, go back, go and buy back your wife. Go pay a steep price and buy back your wife from her adultery. Take her back into your home and renew your covenant of marriage with her. And that action of the prophet represented what God would do for His people. He would buy them back. He would redeem them. Bring them back to Himself. Renew His covenant with them. And be their bridegroom. Well, that picture is why Peter says to the church, you are beloved because that is what God has done for you. He has bought you back. He has redeemed you. And the price that he paid is the highest price price that could be imagined in the universe. It's the blood of his own son. He has bought you back. And your covenant is renewed. It's that covenant love that Peter's alluding to. You are a loved church with that kind of love. And so Peter is saying, be holy because you are loved with that kind of love. The love of a bride to a bridegroom who paid such a price to bring her back to himself. That's the motivation for pursuing holiness. Someone who is loved that much should respond with deep and abiding love for the bridegroom. It's interesting, verse 12, if you skip down to the end of verse 12, he talks about our honorable conduct and then talks about our good deeds before the world. And the word good there 
is the word in Greek that means really beautiful, attractive. Your beautiful and attractive deeds before the world. He's saying we should want to be beautiful for a bridegroom like that. We should dress up and make ourselves beautiful for that kind of a bridegroom. You see, in God's eyes, holiness is beauty. We work so hard to make ourselves attractive before the world, but real beauty is holiness. And we must want, if we understand the love of Christ for us, we must want to be beautiful for Him. That's to be the driving motivation for our sanctification. Listen to these words from Revelation chapter 19. If you know the context, Revelation 19 talks about the marriage feast of the Lamb when Christ will return and we will be together with Him for all eternity and we'll have the great marriage feast of the Lamb. And listen to the description. It says, Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then the verse actually adds a word of explanation. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And I love that because we talk about being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. But the, 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 the clothing that the bride puts on is really the work of sanctification is what it's referring to. It's a growth in righteousness. And so what... John is saying there in that vision, what God is saying through John, is that your whole life of putting on the beautiful, attractive works of righteousness, of holiness, is the process of a bride preparing herself for the day of her wedding. You're beautifying yourself for the coming bridegroom. And what a great picture of what sanctification is all about. We had a wedding here yesterday. We had Jonathan and Kelly, a couple from our church, got married here yesterday. And I am sure that yesterday morning, as Kelly was getting ready to be married, I, don't, I bet there was not a single woman on the entire planet who wanted to be more beautiful than Kelly yesterday morning. Because she was preparing not only to stand before God's people, but to come to her bridegroom. And that's the same kind of motivation that we should have every day as we wait for Christ to return. He has loved us so much. He has laid down His life for us. He has bought us back with the price of His own blood. Therefore, we should love Him in response and want to be beautiful with holiness. And so that's you see how that identity drives our desire to be obedient. The second identity that Peter gives is that we are sojourners and exiles. Sojourners and exiles. Now those words, if you look at them in the original language, are very close synonyms. And they both basically mean a person who temporarily resides in a foreign country, but they retain their citizenship somewhere else. We looked at the word back in, it's the same word, uh, exiles, that's used back in verse 1 of chapter 1, where Peter calls the believers elect exiles of the dispersion. It's very important in Peter's mind that we understand that we have this self-identity as the church, that we are exiles and sojourners where we are today. 
Because we belong to Christ in this covenant relationship, we no longer belong to the world. We are in the world, but we're not of it. And so we don't separate ourselves from the world. We don't go off and form our own little country somewhere where we don't have to interact with the world. We are in the world. We are aliens. We are sojourners. We are exiles. We're living in the midst of the world, but we're not like the world. We don't belong to the world. We don't create some holy bubble. We engage the world in the midst of the world, but we don't conform to the world. We serve a different Lord and King. We are guided by a different law. And we are motivated by different rewards. We operate within a different worldview in the midst of a dark and fallen and sinful generation. Notice everything I listed there. The, the, the obedience to the Lord, the, the law, the, the rewards, the worldview, these are all things that are internal, not external. They're inner differences, not outer differences. We're not talking about the way we talk or walk or wear our hair or dress. It's about how we make our decisions. It's about how we think. It's about what we value in life. That's what it means to be in the world but not of it. Those inner aspects of our being are different from the world around us. And as we understand that, as that is our identity, that we are sojourners and exiles, we're not trying to belong. We're not trying to be accepted. We're not trying to meet the standards of the world. We live by different standards. We serve a different Lord. It's important to our identity, Peter says. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, speaking of the world, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we speak of these internal differences, that brings us to the second newness. Remember, the first newness is our new identity. We are beloved as the bride of Christ, and we are sojourners and exiles. That's our new identity. Secondly, Peter says, we have a new nature. We have a new nature within us. One of those internal differences is that new nature. Peter appeals to that. He says, you are to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. You see, Peter can only say that to believers. He can only say that to people who are born again. Because part of that new birth is a new nature which has new desires. And that puts us into immediate conflict. Because the old desires are still there. And Peter alludes to this, that immediately within you there's a war. A war between new natures, which, uh, your new nature and your new desires, which you didn't have before, and your old desires, which are still tied to and conform to the world. It's a war between passions, Peter says. The passions of the flesh and the newly implanted passions of the Holy Spirit. You see, that's a battle that you can't win by putting yourself off in a monastery or a nunnery somewhere. Because the battle's inside of you. Everywhere you go, you take the battle with you. And what Paul tells us is that we've already won the war. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5, 
Verse 24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In a very real sense, the passions of the flesh are crucified at the cross if you've given your life to Christ. That doesn't mean the passions are gone. But it does mean that their power over you is broken. The power over you is broken. Paul says in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, after laying out the good news of salvation by grace through faith alone, he goes on to say in Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You see what he's saying? The power of sin is broken. You are free to obey. God, by grace, has given you new desires and a new nature that desires holiness. So, you know, Paul is directly addressing this mindset that if there are no consequences, if there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ because of the gospel... Why is that not a blank check to go out and sin and live it up according to the the standards and desires of the world? Why? Well, because your old nature has died with Christ on the cross. The power over you of sin is broken. You are no longer slaves to sin. Why would you go back to living the ways of the flesh? Fulfilling the desires of the flesh. We're free from that. You see, it's really important to understand that this battle is waged in the soul, in the heart. That's important. Again, we're talking about who we are, who we understand ourselves to be. There is this battle going on between our new nature and our old desires. But the new nature is already won. And understand that if that's where the battle line is drawn, then that's one of the keys to really pursuing holiness. That's where you fight the battle. It's in the heart. It's in the soul. In front of our new house, we have some of these stone squares that we use for steps and alongside of our driveway. And they look nice, except this time of year, they look nice for the first month we lived there, but now spring has come and Grass is growing and the weeds are growing and it's starting to look pretty shoddy because between all those little stones, you have all those cracks where all the weeds and grass grow. And I had to go out and buy a weed whacker, so that's one of my goals is to go around and do some weed whacking and get rid of some of these weeds that are growing up around the house in this coming week. But I realized that if I just take the weed whacker after those weeds, I'll cut them down and it'll look nice for three or four days, but then within a week or so, it's going to start to look shoddy again because they'll start growing again. The only way to get rid of them for any length of time is to go out and buy some weed killer and let the weed killer go to the roots and kill the weed. And if we, that's why it's, under, it's important that we understand that the battle that we wage, Paul, Peter says, it's in the soul. It's not outwardly in your actions. It's not out there in the world. It's in your soul. That's where the battle has to be waged. You've got to go to the root of sin. And when I talk to young men about the battles with sexual sin, I always have to emphasize this. If you only fight the battle out in your deeds, in what you're doing, if that's where you draw your battle line, you're never going to win. You're always going to be a slave to that sin. You need to win the battle in your heart. That's what Jesus was getting at when he said in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
You hear what Peter's saying, or what Jesus is saying, and what Peter is reflecting, is that you need to overcome that sin in your heart, or else you'll never overcome it in your outward action. Pride and idolatry and selfishness, those are the roots of our bad behavior. And we need to fight the battle. We need to indulge the new nature and crucify the old nature in the heart. If you know anything about the Battle of the Bulge, one of the great battles of World War II, it was a battle that was largely fought by tanks. And the German army had a great advantage over the Allied armies in the tanks that they used. And they were winning. And that was, it could have turned the whole thrust the whole nature of the war around dramatically if the Allied forces had not figured out that what they needed to do was to destroy the fuel depots and to cut the supply lines. And that's how they won the decisive battle in the war for Europe. We need to understand that we need to go to what fuels bad behavior and not just fight the bad behavior itself. And that's the battle that, that Peter is alluding to. And that comes by feeding the new nature and starving the old nature. The passions of the flesh, as we grow in faith, as we understand the rewards of Christ's kingdom more and more, as we understand the pleasures and the joys of obedience more and more, we will begin to understand more and more that sin is repulsive, that sin is ugly, that sin is unsatisfying actually happens in the movie, interestingly, in the movie Groundhog Day. At a certain point, Phil Connors, after indulging all of the sin and, and thinking, I don't have any consequences of my behavior, he lives it up, he eats what he wants, he drinks what he wants, he lives how he wants. Remember what happens next in the movie, the next stage in his understanding? He starts committing suicide, killing himself. Of course, he has to do it again. Every day, because he wakes up in bed on Groundhog Day every morning. So if he kills himself on Groundhog Day, he's just going to have to wake up and do it again the next day. And he goes to there's this very dark period of the movie where he he decide, he figures out that there, it's unsatisfying to give yourselves over to this kind of living. Totally unsatisfying. It, he ends up in this dark and unsatisfied place. And suicide is his solution. You see, we've been born again. We have a new nature. Our eyes have been opened. We've been saved by grace. We know already that those the, the, the desires of the flesh, the sin, cannot satisfy. But our eyes have been opened to true satisfaction, true joy, true treasure. In Galatians 5.16, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You see, it's not don't, 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 don't. It's do. Do seek the things of the Lord because that's where true joy and pleasure and satisfaction are found. Feed the new nature. Starve the old man. It's that New Testament principle of putting off and putting on. It's an understanding. It's having your eyes open by faith to understand what David says in Psalm 16, verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We have a new identity. We have a new nature. Finally, Peter says we have a new purpose. And that new purpose is served and fulfilled through holiness. Our new purpose is fulfilled by holiness. Look at verse 12. 
He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are all about doing good deeds, not as an end in and of themselves, but so that we may glorify God. That's our new purpose. We don't live to glorify ourselves anymore. We live to glorify God. The goal of our conduct, even our good deeds, is no longer to glorify ourselves, but to glorify God. You see, that's helped us understand, but there are many you know, unbelievers, pagans, people who adhere to other religions, who will do good things, outwardly speaking. But the difference is they do it to glorify themselves and not to glorify God. Because glorifying God with your holiness and your good deeds is unique to believers. In that movie, again, in Groundhog Day, after he realizes he can't kill himself, that that's obviously not the end of his suffering and situation, do you remember what he does? He starts to better himself. Takes piano lessons. Learns how to become a doctor. He goes around saving people's lives. He rescues children. He changes tires. He feeds street people. And by the end of the movie, everybody in Punxsutawney thinks that Phil Connors is the greatest guy on earth. But you know what? That's not our purpose. Our purpose is not to be the nicest, kindest, most giving most law-abiding citizen in State College. That's not our purpose. We've been given a new purpose. It's to glorify God. That's our new purpose. The Gospel is that we are saved from serving and worshiping ourselves to worshiping God. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You were beloved. You were bought with a price. Redeemed. You were given a new identity. You were given a new nature. And you are given a new purpose. And that purpose is to glorify God. You see, there's got to be something different about our goodness. When people look at Oakwood Presbyterian Church, they should see a goodness about this church that's different than a Mormon church. Or different than the Lions Club or some other society that's set about to do good works. There needs to be something deeply different about it. We've got to stand out. And it's all because we're here to glorify God and not ourselves. Worship-filled obedience is what we're talking about. Worship-filled obedience is crucial to our witness. Peter alludes to it happening in the home. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do you see what he's saying? That wives with unbelieving husbands should live good lives. They should be holy. Why? Not to glorify themselves, but to glorify God. And hopefully, Peter says, so that the unbelieving husband will see something that's so different, so supernatural about their obedience that they'll be drawn not to the wife primarily, but to the God of the wife. And that's what Peter's saying here at the end of chapter 2. Keep your conduct honorable so that when they, see, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, Peter's just saying the same thing that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. 
He said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people put a light, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put it on a stand and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's about newness. Why be good if there's no consequences to your sin because of the cross? It's all about worship-filled obedience because of who we are, our new nature, and our new purpose. There was a dispute this past week I read about. There's a high school in, in Virginia where they're having this big legal battle because somebody put up the Ten Commandments, and you've heard all these battles before. Somebody put up the Ten Commandments, the ACLU and all these other groups come in and try to get them taken down. Well, did you hear that kind of a novel compromise the judge came up with in this case? He said, tell you what, take down the first four and leave the other six. You know, the first four that talk about honoring God before others and keeping the Sabbath and not taking his name in vain. Take those first four down, keep the rest, the, the not stealing, not killing, not committing adultery, because those are, in his words, more secular. Now, I'm not going to get into the politics of that particular thing, but do you understand why that doesn't work in the church? Because what Peter is saying is that keeping the last six commandments is meaningless unless you're doing them for the reasons of the first four commandments. If you're not worshiping God with your obedience, if you're not seeking to please your Redeemer with your obedience because you love Him because of the way He first loved you, then all that obedience is meaningless. The redeeming love of Christ produces in us the motivation to pursue the beauty of holiness. That's because of our new identity as beloved exiles, of our new nature, which longs for holiness, and our new purpose, which is to glorify God with our lives. That's what should make us stand out. Let's pray. Father, when we understand what your word lays before us as the reasons for seeking holiness, again, we're convicted that we've pursued holiness in so many days and so many times and so many situations for our own glory and not for your glory. Father, please stir up that desire that you have first put within us by your grace to be like Christ and to honor him with our lives. And Lord, make your church beautiful and prepare us for the coming of our bridegroom on that great and glorious day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.